Amen. Well, if you would remain standing and turn your Bibles to, we're going to read from Exodus 20 and verse 17, and then we will read our passage from Proverbs 8. And before I read the text, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us. Now, gracious Father, we come to the reading of your word and the preaching of it, Lord, that we might explain this doctrine, Lord, this commandment, this to not covet, and how it relates to this sin of abortion. Now, Father, open our eyes, our mind, give us sense, help us to connect the dots, and Lord, help us to understand it. Lord, open our hearts to embrace it. Lord, that we might understand it completely and able to implement it, whether in conversation, Lord, as a light to someone else who needs instruction, or Lord, even to govern our own thought life, our own hearts. Help us, O oh Lord, grasp the essence of this commandment and walk there by it. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17. The word of God says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And now Proverbs chapter 8 verse 32 Now, therefore, O sons, listen to me, for blessed are they who keep my ways. Heed instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. And blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorpost. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me injures himself. And all those who hate me love death. And you may be seated. Well, this morning I plan to finish what I began several weeks ago, and that is take the sin of abortion and compare it to each commandment, hoping to, uh, to raise the uh, awareness that abortion is a grievous sin, a horrible sin in God's sight, by demonstrating how it violates each of the commandments, which is a hermeneutical rule on how we judge what sins are the most heinous in God's sight. Not all sins are equal and thus shouldn't be treated equally. My desire was to help us not only grow in our understanding of the word of God and how to use it, but that we would also be able to speak to our day, to speak to the issue, this secular sacrament of abortion. I'm sure most of us have seen or at least heard of the celebrations by civil leaders when uh, laws are past that have no constraints on the murder of children, unborn children. I, I, I have in my mind this, this horrible picture. I remember it, it was, I think, the state of New York when they passed some of the most heinous bills related to this unbridled uh, access to abortion and the celebration and almost like a party uh, the eruption of the civil leaders and, and how grievous that was, not only, I mean, in my side and many of the other Christians that watched and was aware of it, but how do you think about the, how, the grief of God over such activity? It's astounding. I've wanted to give us an opportunity to, to at least 
have that biblical ammunition and, and encouragement to speak to those who are unaware or uninformed or ignorant about such things. That we might be able to, with, with tenderness, take the word of God and, and, and demonstrate just how heinous this really is in God's sight and how detrimental it is not only for the, the person considering the abortion, but the community, the society, the people, the nation that accepts and allows such things, the, the, the death that occurs. And that was the purpose of using Proverbs 8, 32 through 36, that there, that there is a, a, a deadening, a dulling, a, a, a killing of a nation when, when they accept these these heinous moral breaks and consider it to be normal. These moral breaches and they consider it to be commonplace. It erodes the foundation of all nations that accept it and practice it. And we see it going on around us. I mean, it's observable, isn't it? And I've said this, and I, 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 I'm wedded to it. I'm married to this thought, unless you can change my mind. But, you know, going back out of the free love movement and all of those things, and then the, the uh, you know, Supreme Court decision to, quote, legalize abortion, to give it, give access to the, the murdering of preborn and unborn children, that all of these perversions we see today are just continuing to snowball and to flow out of and from these sins. Romans 1 teaches us that God judges the nations who is committed to sinning against him by allowing them to reap the fruit of the sins that they continue to commit. He turns them over to it. And, and, and that's why we are witnessing this, this national epidemic of mental illness with, with homosexuality and the trans confusion group. It's mental illness, but it begins morally. It begins from a moral infection. It begins where Proverbs 8 is telling us when, when God is offended, when God, when people turn their back on God, when a person turns their back on God, it is dangerous and it is harmful. There's no way around that truth. You know, we just confessed um, in our worship service on the fourth commandment that there's a day that we ought to worship the Lord. Well, if there is a God, he ought to be worshiped. And if he ought to be worshiped, there has to be a time to worship him. And I think there's a direct correlation between the nonchalant attitude people have with God. It's, the problem the, the problem isn't that people won't confess that there's a God or that they even believe in this God. The problem is they have such a low view of him, it doesn't matter. Just like you can say, well, yeah, I believe so-and-so is, you know, a person and they live over there on Elm Street or whatever, but, you know, I don't have any... Opinion, I don't have a high opinion of that. They'll confess God, but they have such a low opinion of God, it has no bearing upon the way they think and how they live. What's the essence of the 10th commandment? Well, we all have probably heard that the essence of the 10th commandment is contentment. Now, 
like I've done with the other commandments. I'm not gonna take this commandment and just open it up as it stands on its own. I'm gonna relate it to the sin of abortion. But I do wanna address this, even Calvin recognized, I I wanna address this, on its face, there's this temptation to see the 10th commandment as just a sort of summary of all the other commandments. And, and, and John Calvin, that French theologian in the Institutes of the Christian Religion said that that would be a mistake. That the commandment is designed by God to stand upon its own because of what it teaches us. That these inordinate desires, these passions, these 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 evil desires originate in the heart and we must learn and we have a commandment telling us to govern our hearts, to govern our minds, to govern our attitudes, that sin just doesn't be, you know, sin doesn't exist when it breaks out in the open. It existed before then, as James teaches us. When we take the bait, so to speak, when we take when we move from the temptation, which is not sinful, to the contemplation and the study of that sin and that desire and that passion, it begins, it starts in our hearts. And and, and John Calvin makes this very important distinction and it's, it's so relatable that I need to share it with you, but so that you can see the commandment in the light that he presented it. Now he talked about its difficulty. He said, but this, he said, the difficulty will easily be removed by distinguishing between design and covetousness. He said, it is difficult. He said, and it is perplexing for some Christians when they're looking at the commandments on their face. But he goes to say this, he says, as therefore the Lord previously ordered that charity should regulate our wishes, our studies, our actions. So he now orders us to regulate the thoughts of our mind in the same way that none of them may be depraved or distorted as to give the mind a contrary bent. Now notice what Calvin said. He says, the 10th commandment regulates love in the heart. It's not just enough to do some outward action. The 10th commandment commands us in our hearts to love our neighbor from the heart and that we would regulate our thought life and our minds when we begin to think evil suspicions or we begin to be overly harsh or we begin to be in any way uh, unloving that we would begin to stop it in our hearts first. He goes on to say this. He says, insofar, therefore, as the mind is devoid of charity, it must be under the influence of of concupiscence, that is, greed, lustful passions. God, therefore, commands a strong and ardent affection, an affection not to be impeded by any portion, however minute, of concupiscence. He requires a mind so admirably arranged as not to be promoted in the slightest degree contrary to the law of love. The sum of the whole commandment therefore is that whatever each individual possesses is to remain entire and secure, not only from injury or the wish to injure, but also from the slightest feeling of covetousness which can spring up into mind. So Calvin says, listen, this commandment stops stealing. It stops abuse. It stops anything that would cause us to distort our neighbor or anything that belongs to him way back here in the heart. And he says that that movement, that motive that stops the outbreak of theft, adultery, Murder is love. 
love. Love from the heart. I'm going to read another portion. And then we'll move to some scripture. He goes on, he says, For almost in every occasion, when they exhort men to repentance, omitting the first table, they insist on faith, judgment, mercy, and equity. Nor do they in this way omit the fear of God. They only require a serious proof of it from its signs. It is well known indeed that the, they treat, they, at, when they treat the law, they generally insist on the second table. And he's talking about the apostles and he's talking about the New Testament. That oftentimes when they cite the law in the lives of men, they don't cite the first table of the law. They cite the second table of the law. Now, he says, because therein the cultivation of righteousness and integrity is manifested. Now listen to what he says. For there is no occasion to quote passages. Everyone can easily for himself perceive the truth of my observation. So it is, so it is then true. You will ask that it is more complete summary of righteousness to live innocently with men than piously toward God. He says, by no means. He's not saying love men more than love God. He said, no, by no means. He said, but because no man, as a matter of course, observes charity in all respects unless he seriously fear God, such, observe, such observance is a proof of piety also. Here's what Calvin says. Calvin says, listen, it's easy for men to even say they believe God, they love God, they want to worship God, and even show up at worship. Right now, everyone here is assumed on, at face, on its face that you all love the Lord and you're here for all the right reasons. But Calvin says it is much harder to love someone else for the right reasons. Because we would all say, well, God deserves to be loved. Calvin says, when you turn your attention to your common fellow man, that's where, that's where the essence of love is exhibited in how we love one another. Why? Because it's the hardest thing to do. It's the hardest thing to do. Because how often will we turn our backs upon those when they just slight us in the, in the smallest way? But even when we face difficulty, what do we say about God? We say, well... God is sovereign. God is doing a work. God is, is, is working in me. He's, he's performing his will. God is good, even though in our hearts we may be complaining. We may be standing up, shaking our fist, even though we say the right things. Calvin says, that's, that's one thing, but to love your common man, that's where piety exists, true piety, because no one can truly do it lest they love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. I think there's an amen to that. Look at Romans chapter 13. You'll find that this is the practice of the Apostle Paul in Romans and in Galatians, but we'll turn to another passage of Scripture after these two. But I want you to see this with your own eyes and hear with your own ears. Romans 13, 8, and following, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you should not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, is Calvin ignoring the first table of the law? He is not. He's assuming the first table of the law in these commandments because Calvin knows, or excuse me, Paul knows. John Calvin did not write the book of Romans. But Paul understands 
that this love, charity for one another flows from that original love of God. And it strengthens us and and motivates us to do what? Maintain that charity with our brothers and our sisters. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14, Paul writes, For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Again, here, and he's writing to the Galatians, and he tells them the same thing. He tells that, that body of Christians that what? The whole law is fulfilled in this, how you love one another. But let's go to a place where our Lord Jesus practices this hermeneutic. Turn to Luke 18. And this is how our Lord Jesus used this principle. Matthew, uh, excuse me, Luke 18 and verse 18. We have this interaction between Jesus and the rich young ruler. I'm going to begin reading at verse 18. A ruler questioned him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus heard, or when Jesus heard this, he said to him, and one thing you still lack. Sell all you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? Now, I mean, Jesus did not start with the first commandment or the second commandment or the third commandment, or the fourth commandment. But Jesus quotes the second table of the law. Now, the, obviously this young ruler did not understand not only the scriptures, but he didn't understand his own heart. Because his comeback to what Jesus told him to do was, I've done these things. Now, Jesus, knowing his heart, thought the best way to, do, to show for this young man to learn of his own depravity and his own bankruptcy, his moral bankruptcy, is to say, well, I tell you what, let me put my finger on the things that he values the most. Go, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. You can see in there the ninth commandment. Go love your brother. Go, go love your brethren who are in need. And what happened, what happened was the rich young ruler didn't want to. See, he demonstrated he didn't have that kind of charity for his brethren, particularly those who were in the greatest need, which meant he didn't have the love of God either in his life. And we see here, brothers and sisters, this principle in the 10th commandment that demands charity and love for one another even to the point where, listen, the 10th commandment causes us or commands us in a, in a positive way to do what? Celebrate the possessions of our neighbor. Be thankful for what they have. Be thankful for their wealth, for their accomplishments, for their successes. Celebrate it with them. Don't covet them. Love your neighbor and celebrate when good things happen to them. Do your best to root out this hatred in your heart. Now, how does it, how do we connect this to abortion? 
Well, you may have already begun to make some connections, but let me give you three. First of all, I think there's a connection that is obvious that we've already stated, and that is a lack of love toward others. When the woman is carrying a child, it's the lack of love for the unborn child. What should that woman desire for her unborn baby? She should want that baby to do what? Grow up, experience life, to be successful, to do all that she can. You can see how the, you can see the, the, the love that ought to be flow. If, we, if, we're to, if this love is to flow from, from one another, how much more to the child? That the child would have uh, all of the good things that she co- that, that's common. That is, whatever she could provide would be what she would give to this unborn child. Not take its life, but to give it life. And to give it life would be all the things that matter in life. Food, raiment, clothing, education, all of those things. Taking it to church, catechizing it, teaching it to worship God, teaching it to love God, teaching it to love its neighbor. By the, even the mother's example. Now that's on its face and that's the obvious one, isn't it? But remember the responsibility that we have to one another is the strongest when it's the closest to us. Whoever our closest neighbor is, is the one that ought to be getting the majority of our love, right? And it's the ripple effect, but it's the broadening effect as well. That's why even Jesus could say legitimately, even when your enemy is thirsty, give them some water to drink. That is an act of love. That's a common act of love, if you will, even to those that consider themselves your enemy. So that's number one. Number two, the breaking of the 10th commandment, abortion breaks the 10th commandment because it's the evil promotion of self. I have said a lot in this pulpit over the last several months about loving self. And what I want to help you understand is that is a natural principle. It's a natural principle. It's the law of nature. It's that which is commonplace in the word. Love your neighbor as yourself. The reason the Bible never commands us to love ourselves is because we do that naturally. And to command a sinner to love himself is to be, we'd be off the charts, inordinate, extreme, excessive. And so there are all kinds of laws and rules to mitigate that excessive love for self. Because we can overdo it, can we? Can't we? We can overdo it. But we do love ourselves. That's why we dress ourselves. That's why we take baths, brush our teeth, comb our hair. That's why we want to smell good. That's why we educate ourselves. That's why we eat certain types of food because we like them. There's all these things. And Paul uses that same principle even dealing with a husband and wife in Ephesians 5. And Paul addresses that and he says, does the man just mistreat his wife? Is like mistreating himself. And what man doesn't love his own body, Paul says. Was he wrong? No, he was not wrong. I'm not going to continue to recite those verses, but just again, love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them or desire them to do unto you. But this is the evil promotion of self. This is the, 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 the study of evil, the study of sin. What does the commandment say? Well, don't covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's manservant, his maidservant, anything that's your neighbor's. It's the study. It's this idea that there is this craving for what someone else has, whether it's physical or not. Popularity. Success. Education. Gifts, usefulness. What are the two things, if you remember, what are the two 
primary reasons given with young ladies from upper teens to 30 years old. What are the two main reasons given for having an abortion? Career and education. Those are the two main reasons. Career and education. These, this evil promotion of self often works with this idea of this inordinate love for self, seeing, seeing yourself as more deserving than another. I deserve this, they do not. And, and that's, that's pandemic in our culture. That, that's the whole essence, that, that's the whole mindset of communism. It, it's th- this idea, this, this twisted use of the word equity, which is a great word that even our confession uses. But it's twisted. It's not just equal access. It's equal outcome. That no matter who you are, no matter what effort you put into it, you, you deserve what others receive, no matter how hard they work, no matter if they put everything they have into it. I do love the um, sidewalk interviews that you can find on the internet where they're going around and they're asking people interviews. And, and the great thing is when it comes to, you know, government handing out money, everybody, you know, typically the college students, right? They're all for it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We want, stu- we want debt forgiveness. We want, you know, we want, it, we want the government to pay off everything. But then, they, but then they talk about, you know, what about grades? Would you be willing to take some of your A and, give it to somebody that's got a, you know, a D or a C and bring them up and what everyone to a person goes, absolutely not. But that's the same thing. Why should those who have worked hard to be successful and blessed by the God to be that way, why should they, why should it be forcefully taken from them and give it to someone else not willing to put in the time and the effort? You know, I mean, we've got a, a, a sports, uh, and I, I do like college football, and but we have a, we, we worship sports in this country. We worship it. And, and, and I mean, could you imagine the outrage? And, and you can see it creeping in a little bit when you get to the playoffs, the college playoffs, and you say, well, you know what? I know this team beat every team, and they beat all the good teams, but you know what? They're not going because we want to give these other teams a chance. And, it's, and they, they've started putting some of these other teams up against some of these bigger, faster, better teams, and they're demolished because there's no equality in sports. Every one of them different. That's why you compete. You compete to find out who's stronger, faster, better. And that's who usually earns the victory. But again, but what are we doing in politics? We're doing the exact opposite. And remember what we talked about last week? Remember how a distortion of the truth and lies, what does it do? It demoralizes a nation and it establishes, it erodes the foundation of a nation. And that's exactly what we're witnessing. So this study of evil, this, this idea of the evil promotion of self, not a, a biblical understanding, but the excessive promotion of self, seeing one as more deserving. I can see young ladies, because of the two decisions, right, because of the two you know, career and education, a, a, a young woman uh, gets pregnant and she decides, well, if I have this child, it's going to interrupt my career. I'm not going to have my, my car. I'm not going to be able to afford the apartment I want. I'm not going to be able to move to the city I want to move to. I'm not going to be able to have the lifestyle I want. 
the baby has to go. And her inordinate desires overrise the life of that unborn child. Her cravings are so strong. They are so powerful in controlling her that she'll go down and have that baby murdered in an abortion in order to achieve her goals, all the while saying, I deserve this. The baby doesn't stand a chance against that kind of craving. So that's number two. Number three is one that is connected in the scriptures and several places. We'll look at Colossians 3, 5 here in just a second. But the third one is the service to the gods of this age. The connection of abortion to this commandment is idolatry. When our hearts crave things that God has not given us, that God has put out of our reach, that God, that we'd have to trespass to have, that's the whole idea of commit, uh, contentment. Now, let me say this about contentment because I've been asked this dozens of times. Pastor, do you mean that that commandment is keeping me from, from success? No. Is it, is it keeping me from promotion? Should I seek a job promotion if I'm to be content where I am? Is it wrong for me to seek a promotion? No, it's not. Paul even told slaves in the first century, if you can uh, obtain your freedom, thus seek it. But if you can't obtain freedom, if there's no possible way you're going to obtain freedom, what should that Christian slave do? Serve with contentment. Obvious, we should do our best at all times and that often ends up bearing the fruit of promotion and success, does it not? That's not a curse, that's a blessing. What I'm talking about here is this inordinate excessive love. It's the, it's the appeasing of the gods of this age, the zeitgeist, if you will. Turn to Colossians 3, 5. I'll show you the connection. Therefore, Paul says, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God has come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Paul connects these passions, these, these, these heart attitudes, right, to idolatry. You see, and I, I use the plural gods of this age because there are many. The God of success, right? The God of popularity, the God of acceptance. I mean, that's one of the things that I think I've tried to bring out without you know, focusing on it is that this, this agenda, this feminist movement, this feminism, it's the exploitation of women. It's not a help. It's not an aid. It's the exploitation of women. And so there are these expectations that these young women have, particularly these college students, where they're just inundated and bombarded with this critical race theory and all of these social theories and whatnot that all flow out of communism that's been in our educational system now for at least 20 to 30 years, just slowly creeping to a higher pitch. The point being as they feel compelled to obey the zeitgeist, the gods of this age. They feel compelled to walk with the rest of their peer group. And I think that's where the church has failed. That's where we have failed. That's where the church at large has failed to do what? Reach them with the gospel. 
First of all, reaching them with the 10th commandment and all the other commandments, but what about this one? Paul's point here in Colossians 3, 5, and take note of this, because look at, the, look at these uh, passions, the members of your earthly body. Consider them, what is it, these members of your earthly body as dead to what? Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed. No, notice, Paul, here's, here's I think the thrust of what Paul is addressing when he talks about it all amounting to idolatry, that these passions, these heart desires are so strong. They're so strong. They have almost, for, for particularly the carnal person, the unchristian, but it, hey, even for Christians too, right? Because how many times do we struggle with these things? But for the non-Christian, they are so strong, they're like gods. You can't say no to them. They are so powerful. They're so entrenching. They're so engaging to the mind. You get to where all you, all you do is think about what you don't have and what someone else has and you don't have it, how you deserve it, how you want it, how you're going to get it. What is it going to take for me to have it? And the next thing you know, that's your whole life. But what happens is later on, Years and years and years down the road, that person wakes up one day completely bankrupt of real desire, real passion and happiness. What might be, beloved, the gods of this age? Happiness? See, the gods of this age says that you can be happy without holiness. That's what the gods of this age say. Oh, you can be unbridled. You, look, just All you need to do to be happy is be unbridled in your desires. You'll be happy. Break away from these traditions. Break away from your parents. Why is it so important for the education system to drive a wedge between students and parents? Because they're the gods of the age. They're the secular priests pointing to the gods of this age, which is if you really want to be happy, you just need to let yourself go and do whatever you feel. Well, what do we learn from the Bible? We learn that happiness flows through holiness. Happiness flows through the conduit of holiness. Another God is everyone, and look, we all seek happiness naturally. That, that's the, that, isn't that the the I mean, in one sense, Satan's job is half done, right? Because God created man to desire happiness, except that that happiness must flow through that relationship with him. Satan comes in, interrupts that, intrudes upon it, lies about it, breaks it, and then he just continues to promote lies about what can make you happy, all the while knowing that men and women crave happiness naturally because God made us to naturally crave him. And he is our happiness. He is our joy. He's the only reason, beloved, you should want to go to heaven. It's not the ease of life. It's just not, you know, hey, I'm tired here. When I get up there, it's just going to be a whole, like a vacation. No, we want to be there because he's there. This is where our God is. This is where our Savior is. This is to be in his presence. But the, the second one is similar to it, and that is fulfillment. 
God created us to have this desire to be fulfilled. That, that means that it would require responsibility and action taken on our part to be fulfilled. Adam and Eve, were, give, was, were they were given a dominion mandate and they would find fulfillment in what? Obeying that commandment, carrying out that responsibility. But the God of this world or gods of this world teaches that you can be fulfilled without, uh, without contentment. There, there is no fulfillment without contentment. If you're not learning or have learned or, or not to be content where you are in your life, you're not fulfilled. You're lacking you're empty. Now, not totally, because as a Christian, we can't be totally empty. God still reckons with us and deals with us. Praise God for it. But look at the world. They want, they want, they want, they want, they want to fulfill, they want to fulfill, they want to do all these things, but they don't have contentment where they are. Notice how the young woman thinks, okay, I committed fornication, I got pregnant, the best way for me to be fulfilled is to murder my baby. That's not, you know what she has to do at that point? That is, you know, what's the Christian rule? I need to be content. This is my responsibility. I need to repent of the fornication. I need to repent of my heart longing for that pleasure that was not intended for me until marriage but I trespassed, I took it for myself. I need to repent and I need to see that my contentment now is in keeping my responsibility to be a mother to this child and bring it up in the admonition of the Lord and give it all of the good things in life that I possibly can, not, not inordinate, but just the good things as I'm able. That's the answer. It's not, no, murder your child and you'll find, you'll find fulfillment. It's just lies and lies and lies. But that's what the God of the sage, and it's a powerful, it's a powerful lie. We want fulfillment without contentment. Listen, brothers and sisters, more is never the answer. More is never the answer. It's not. I, I, I love the proverbial wisdom. Lord, don't give me so much that I forget you. And give me so little that I would defame your name by stealing. Help me to be content with what I have. But these women are often deceived by thinking they can commit another sin even worse than the fornication is the murdering of that unborn child. Committing a greater sin will somehow bring fulfillment in their life. It will not. It will only enhance the already brokenness that's there. Number three. Success without responsibility. Now, I've already touched on it. But again, what are the two reasons given that these young ladies, the reasons that they give for having an abortion? Career and education, success. The reason they want to go through their college education, they want to be successful women. But when you find yourself pregnant, you now have another responsibility that takes precedent at that point over these other things. And to have an abortion violates that. It breaks that responsibility and there can be no success there. And that's one reason, brothers and sisters, the horrible truth is this, that there, the suicide rate among women who have had abortion is increasing. You know why I think it's even increasing? Because of our medical technology has become so much clearer, hasn't it? The sonograms, all of these other things that have really presented this picture that this is a baby. 
I'll say it again, and it's, it's, it's tragic. The number one question received by the abortionist from the woman is, will this hurt my baby? The number one question, will this hurt my baby? So those three things right there, the gods of this age, right? This idolatry, happiness without holiness, fulfillment without contentment, and success without responsibility. Well, what's our role in this, brothers and sisters? What's our role? Well, to do what we're doing, but it is to preach the law and the gospel, (laughs) It's to preach the law and the gospel. Why should we preach the law? Because it's the law that makes sin known. Paul said this in Romans 7, in verse 7, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have known to come, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, thou shalt not covet. And one of the things that the world hates, the zeitgeist, is absolutes. We must preach the law. For in the preaching of the law is the awakening of sin. When sinners are awakened, brothers and sisters, what's our responsibility at that point? Preach the gospel. As God Almighty and his spirit convicts them with the law and brings them to the awareness of their own sin and corruption and bankruptcy, then we are to preach the gospel. Why? Because it's the gospel that offers forgiveness, not the law. The law can't offer forgiveness. The law is an absolute standard when it's broken death. Death. The gospel offers mercy and forgiveness. Ephesians 1 and verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, talking about Christ, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. It's the gospel, beloved, where we meet God, not in wrath, but mercy, mercy. When we come to know the law in its raw form and we have never embraced Jesus Christ as Savior, then what, how do we meet God? We meet God in anger and wrath. But we don't stop there. And we offer the gospel Back in Luke chapter 18, the passage we went there to look at the rich young ruler, there's another person there you need to meet, the old blind beggar who cried out to Jesus, O son of David, have mercy on me. That's the gospel. You see, have mercy on me. I can't do this. I'm bankrupt. I'm powerless to keep the law. I have broken it. I have shattered it. I have violated it. I have hated you. I have invited death into my life and all around me, everything I touch is death. But Lord, have mercy on me and you can save me if you want to. If you would just want to. And Jesus said, I do want to. It's in the gospel, beloved, that we have the spirit-filled life, Romans 6. You can turn there later this afternoon. It's the spirit-filled life. It's the life of the spirit, Romans 6, Romans 8, that comes into our lives to do what? To empower us unto living out the life that God has intended for us to live. Yes, now the law takes a different role. It's no longer thunder and, and, and lightning. Now it's that standard by which we under we know the will of God. Oh, this is the God. This is my Father's will. Yes, out of love, I want to obey it, but I can't 
can't do it perfectly. I have grace and mercy in the gospel. The law and the gospel are not the same thing. They're not the same. You're not going to heaven by keeping the law. If you, like Paul said in Galatians 3, if you live by the law, you have to keep it perfectly. And that's already a problem. We live by the gospel. I don't mean to be too personal. How many sins did you commit before even getting to church? I'm sure I had dozens of them. But why did we gather in the presence of God? Because he's merciful. He's gracious. And he loves us in Jesus. And he accepts us in his son. You see, beloved, that's the, look, of course, that's the message for everybody, but isn't that what we need to be taking to these young women? Don't we need to be telling them the gospel? Don't we need to be, hey, we need to give them the law too, don't we? Hey, stop fornicating. Stop doing those things that lead to pregnancies. Let's, let's deal with that too. We don't talk about that. Now, that's a losing battle. Don't worry about that. That's just going to happen. That's just the way it is. That's the, you know, that's the whole college life now. Okay, well, I'm not going to accept that as a Christian. I can't, according to God's word. And I would say this to any Christian young woman listening to this sermon, particularly even online, who thought that they could cover up that fornication, that sin, by murdering that unborn child so nobody would know. God knows. But there is forgiveness. He's seeking. Come to him. Stop the nightmares at night. Stop the crying yourself to sleep. Come to Jesus and he will cleanse you, and he will heal you. Not that those scars, may, they may not ever fully go away because there are certain sins that, that stay with us in some way or another. And that's another reason to, to, to not do them. But he can mitigate the pain in Christ if you'll come to him and humble yourself. And repent of your sins. And I don't want to let the guys off. Because you should never promote it. You should never promote abortion to hide something. All the Christian young men out there listening, don't, don't, don't encourage your girlfriend who, you know, in the youth group to have an abortion because y'all need to hide this from the, your parents and the youth minister. And you say, well, Pastor Jess, you're kind of speaking to, no, this happens. More than we probably want to believe so. You can't hide it from the one that matters. And that's God. And my plea to you as a pastor is to repent of that. Ask her forgiveness. Ask the parents forgiveness. Ask your church's forgiveness. And come to Jesus and let him heal you. Brothers and sisters, this is a big deal. This is a sacrament of the zeitgeist abortion. And that's one reason, because it's such a financial boon, it's a billion, billion dollar industry, why would they stop fornication? It's feeding the machine. And it's destroying lives, families, and it's eroding this nation as one of its chief aggravating sins. I hope our legislators in Georgia do something about it. I hope our representatives do the right thing and pass this bill, this Equal Protection Act. Honor God. Love your neighbor as yourself and pass this bill. Let's pray. And Father in heaven, all we can do, Lord, is plead for mercy. Lord, we have violated this commandment coming and going. 
inordinate love of self, inordinate desire for things, Lord, that you have not given us either ever or at this time or whatever the case may be, Lord, we act, Lord, according to the lust and the passions and the cravings of our generation. Forgive us. Help us in Christ, Lord, to do what Paul commanded. Put these desires to death. Every time they rise up, let us put them to death. Let us render them useless and weak, Lord, in our lives through prayer, Bible memorization, Bible study, uh, Lord, uh, educating ourselves in the sermons we listen to. Let us put to death these desires by the means of grace so that we might be more apt, O oh Lord, to live according to your will than not. Make us a stronger people, a stronger church. Make our family stronger, our relationship stronger, Lord, through holiness. Lord, and therefore, let our happiness flow from this holiness. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.